This podcast is brought to you by John Christensen, the author of a new book entitled The Wealth Creator's Playbook. Please listen to podcast number 712, where John and Greg discuss his new book and his perspectives on wealth creation while creating a return on life and money. John has a very innovative approach to wealth creation, which takes into account not only our money concerns, but our life portfolio, which includes vocational, social, experiential, psychological, intellectual, and spiritual capitals. John believes in living fully, and while this means different things to different people, we are looking for fulfillment in our life both financially, through our life's work, and the contribution we make to the world. Please listen to this engaging interview with author John Christensen on podcast number 712. You are certain to take away a new perspective on how to live your life and the creation of your personal wealth. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Laura, as I do every time, I thank my listeners. I think they get a little fatigued by me thanking them so much. But after being on the air in excess of 14 years with a quarter million listeners out there and people that have been faithful listening to this podcast, I'm certainly eternally grateful. And today joining us, where are you joining us from, Laura? I am joining you from Boston, Massachusetts. All right. So she's in lovely Boston and it's Laura Gassner. And is it Otting? Yes, is that correct? that's correct. Okay. I wanted to make sure that I spelled that right. She has been the author of many books, but the book we're going to be focusing on today is a book called Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. She's also the author of Mission Driven, Moving from Profit to Purpose. Laura, pleasure having you on this show, and um, I always like to let our listeners know a bit about the guests on the show and the authors on the show. Uh, Laura inspires people to push past their doubts and indecision and create and create great ideas in limbo because she because her presentations make listeners think bigger and accept greater challenges that reach beyond their limits and the scope of belief. She delivers strategic thinking, well-honed wisdom, and perspective generated by decades of navigating change across startups, nonprofit, political, as well as philanthropic landscape. Uh, Laura desires listeners to find their voice and generate the confidence needed to tackle larger-than-life challenges. Uh, Laura's entrepreneur edge has been well-honed over 25 years, started as presidential appointee to Bill Clinton White House, where she helped shape AmeriCorps. Uh, she left leadership role as a respected nonprofit research firm of Isaacson Miller to expand the startup executivesearch.com. Uh, Laura's spoken to the, United, to the United States and internationally in universities, companies, conferences, accelerators, TEDx's, and all over the place. So Laura, thanks for being on. You have uh, an amazing background and obviously this book is really for anybody, not just those people in nonprofit or whatever. It's a book. It's a wake up call book, as I call it. And, you know, you start this book out with a great story about Army Captain Joshua Mantis. Well, being in Baghdad, he was shot. He was left to die. He was brought back to life. He got a second chance. And you say what you learned by interviewing him was the void is often clear, clearer than the solution. What do you mean by that? 
So Army Captain Josh Mance is an incredible guy who was really one of those people who followed every single uh, gold star. He had an incredible career. He was rising as fast as he possibly could, getting promoted left and right. He you know, went to West Point, honors, the whole thing. And then he got shot and killed by an enemy sniper in Baghdad, and he he was dead for 15 full minutes. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. They usually, after seven minutes, call time of death, and that's it. But these mechs kept working on him, and they brought him back to life, and not just miraculously brought back to life, but brought back to life with full mental capacity intact. And he he was forced to figure out why. You know, he 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 was somebody who was always doing all the right things. And so he, he stayed in the army a little bit longer and ended up needing to leave because he had, uh, he had health issues. He had a Crohn's flare up that almost killed him again. He was so, you know, stressed out trying to, um, stay on this treadmill of up, 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 up. Um, and so he joined the fastest growing, uh, public, uh, fastest growing private sector company there in the world, Tesla, and continued this meteoric rise and still, no matter what, felt like something was missing. And, you know, I, I had lots of different people throughout the entire book whose stories I tell, but I had to start the book with Josh Mance because if a guy dies and comes back to life and still doesn't understand the meaning of life, then, you know, the rest of us are, we're, we're off the hook a little bit, right? Like none of the rest of us have to figure it out. But what was clear from Josh is that he knew there was something missing. He knew that even though he was busy being told by every person in the world that he was the luckiest guy on earth, he still didn't feel like it. He felt like something was missing. And it became clear to me as I talked to him and as I saw with everybody else I interviewed in the book and as I saw in my own life that sometimes success doesn't always equal happiness. So we have the success, but we feel the void. And the void is really clear, but we don't understand why. Yeah, and you know, this book centers around, uh, I, I would say, probably closing that gap, right? And you explain consonants. And if you would, not incontinent, <laughs> consonants, simply divined, it's what you, the what you do matches who you are or what you want to be. How do you help people or would you help our listeners get closer to this resonance of this? Because there's four elements of it. And I want you to speak about those four elements, if you would. So consonance is this idea of, and we've all heard the word consonance before, but we don't remember it because it's not a word that people use that often. But we hear dissonance a lot, right? So dissonance is when things are discordant, when they don't match. Consonance is simply the opposite. It's when we have alignment, when we have flow, when we have this uh this 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 frictionless sense of belonging when all the things that we do really well and that we enjoy doing are being brought to bear by the thing that's in front of us at hand so what does that mean that means we have to figure out what it is we actually want out of life so that we can match the what we do with the who we are. And in the course of interviewing uh, thousands of leaders at the very top of their game um, in a 20-year career of executive search, placing leaders in C-suite organizations across the country and across the world, um, what I found was that those people who had consonants were truly the ones who were limitless. They were the ones who weren't suffering from fatigue and burnout and stress because the 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 alignment between their action and the impact that they want to make in the world, whether that's you know writ large and lofty or just locally in their community or their company, it 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 was aligned. So what I saw was that there were four elements essentially that made up someone's consonants. The first is calling. And calling is some 
thing that's bigger than you. It doesn't have to be lofty and, and a higher purpose. It just has to be your purpose. It can be building your company's bottom line. It can be growing a new endeavor. It can be serving a leader who inspires you. It could be solving a societal ill, um, curing disease, feeding the poor. It can be something like that. It can also just be the family that you want to grow, but it has to be something that's bigger than just you. That's your calling. The second is connection. How do, do, how do you know that the work you do on a daily basis matters? So if you called into work sick tomorrow, would anybody notice? If you didn't get out of bed and make the waffles for the kids, would anybody say anything? Does the work you're doing matter? And do you have sight lines into how your daily work impacts that calling that you want to achieve? Third is contribution. If connection is really all about the work, contribution is really all about you. We want our work to contribute something to our lives. But what? Is it contributing the money or the flexibility you want to have the kind of lifestyle you'd like to live? Is it allowing you to manifest your values on a daily basis? Is it helping you to create a velocity for your career trajectory that feels good for you? And then lastly is control. And control really speaks to the amount of personal agency that we all have to determine how much we can impact the connection that our work has to our calling or the contribution that it's making to our lives. So that means, do you have say over the, the, the teams that you're assigned to, the um, kind of commission that you might make, the, 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 um, the type of uh, commute that you have? Like, can't, do you have control over the, the connection and the contribution towards that calling? And now the trick is, is that all these things sound great, right? But each one of us is going to value each of these four elements of calling, connection, contribution, and control differently. And... In addition to that, each of us throughout our lives, at every age and at every life stage, will also want and need these elements in different amounts. So the person that I was when I was 21 years old, volunteering on a presidential campaign, happy to be worth my weight in ramen soup and idealism, and happy to get coffee all day long because I was inspired you know, to the end of time, is different than the person I am now as I'm approaching 50 and I have teenage kids and aging parents and um, a job that puts me in an airplane 150,000 miles a year. And that's also going to be different than the person I'm going to be 20 years from now and hopefully I'm you know, enjoying my retirement in some beautiful sunny place. So it, it, the, the idea behind the book is that each one of us actually defines success differently and that this framework of consonants helps us find what success means for us so that when we really do the work to find success, we actually also find happiness as well. So I was going to speak about that while you're flying around in uh, 150,000 miles. I'm sure the question always comes to mind or it comes to mind frequently is, you know, people say, why? You know, um, I do a lot of travel as well. And, you, you know, you get into a city, you get in another hotel and the happiness level has a tendency. How do you maintain that level of happiness as this calling, connection, contribution and control um, really is the dominant thing for the elements of success, but success and happiness. Um, success doesn't always bring happiness. It, success doesn't always bring happiness, but I think that's because a lot of times the success that we have are, is the success of I'm going to follow everybody else's path to everybody else's version of everybody else's success. So mm -hmm. we might have one on paper looks like the right life, but it's not. And it's because we spent a lot of time building a life only to turn around and figure out that we're building a life that was meant for someone else and not so us. So how do you give your listeners, your readers, your people the courage 
to stand up and find those things, that calling, that connection and contribution, because it does take, if I was to add another seat to that, it takes some courage. Of course, it absolutely takes courage. And, you know, I, I think the most important thing people can do is to just start ignoring everyone else. You know, all those people who are defining for us what success means and what it has to be. It turns out that I think a lot of people, when you when when they tell you what success means, they are defining it through the lens of their own am- ambitions or their own anxieties or their own fears. And they're not really worrying about us that much. One of my favorite quotes is by Eleanor Roosevelt, who said that we would worry a whole lot less about what people thought about us if we realized how little they did. And exactly. so That's I think, true. yeah, I think one of the most important things is to realize not that many people are paying attention. You know, they may be really intensely paying attention in a certain moment or a certain season, but then they're not anymore. And at the end of the day, we're the ones who have to be happy. So, you know, as you mentioned, I travel 150,000 miles a year. My work puts me on um, stages, uh, speaking to thousands of people in, at colleges and at, at, at uh, conferences and at companies. And, and, and how do I keep happy with that? I actually love it. I'm never as happy as I am when I have a passport in one hand and a boarding pass in the other. And my kids make fun of me all the time because I love to take pictures of foreign departure boards and the, the further <laughs> away, the better, you know, and yeah. if they're written in some like non uh, Roman lettering, so that it looks even more, um, even, even more exotic. I mean, it, it gets my wanderlust going like nobody's business. But but it also means that even though I'm on an airplane 150,000 miles a year, it means that I work for 45 minutes on a stage and then I get to see friends and colleagues and I get to meet new people in the cities that I'm going to. And it also means that even though I'm gone two to three days a week, I'm also home, sitting in my home office two to three days a week. And I can show up then for my kids' ultimate Frisbee match or for um, a, the school musical or whatever the things are. I actually have a huge amount of flexibility. So for me, the the sea of contribution is really my most important sea right now. Like I, I have a calling. I have this new book out. I, I want to bring it out to the world and help people be happy. Right. And I want my work to be connected. I'm not going to sit and do busy work that doesn't actually get that book out there. Anything that I'm doing that's not promoting the book or promoting myself as a as a, a, a motivational keynote speaker doesn't make sense for me to do right now. And and control, obviously, I'm I'm an entrepreneur. I always want to be able to be the person who's you know in charge of my own destiny. But for me, contribution really matters. I've got you know a kid in eighth grade and a kid in tenth grade and a husband with an exceptionally inflexible career. So I want to be able to to be able to show up for the things that matter. I got a great piece of career advice years ago, um, and it was this. You're just not that important. And that's a pretty hard piece of advice to get when you think, you know, you're the center of the universe to your community, to your company, to your family. But that advice that I wasn't that important and I was spreading myself trying to be all things to all people made me realize that, in fact, there are places where I am that important. And I need to double down there. So the courage that I found to change what I was doing when I was at the big firm and start my own my own uh, executive search firm and then to leave that and sell it to my people and go into this new life of writing and speaking is really because I wasn't saying, what are people going to think of me? Are people going to approve? Are they not going to approve? I thought to myself, where am I that important? And how do I create a life that allows me through my work to be able to show up more in those places? Well, like you said, this is about uh, 
carving your own path. And so it, it requires you to do that. Now, in your second chapter, you have this values of questioning limits. You state that the millennial generation, which we're all working with, and you're obviously not a millennial and neither am I, is begging the question of what work should be. In other words, what is the, what is the new design of work? Um, that meaning, fulfillment, and alignment are important to this generation. I think they've been important to the other generations as well, the Gen Xers, but maybe they just didn't know it. It was something that they didn't, they couldn't express. How do you help this generation and generations to come, including kids like your age that are in junior high school and high school, redefine significance? Uh, significance. Um, I, I, you know, I think that they're going. I think they're going to define it on their own. I don't know that they need <laughs> they need any help from me. Um, and I think it's because they they don't live in a world where they're seeking work life balance. You know, they're having a very hard time finding work life balance because people like us are telling them that they should have it. The truth is they've never had it. They've never wanted it. They've grown up with, with, with supercomputers in their pockets who allow them to be at work and at home and be a colleague and be a friend and be constantly connected to all parts of their lives at all times. And so I think the fact that they are not a generation of people who are one person at work and one person at home because there are easy ways to hide, I, they, they, they have always been in a place where they – are the same person in both places. And so I, I think that whether, I don't know that they need, I don't know that they need our help coming up with ways to think about how to be significant. I think they need our understanding that this is the way that the future is going to work and allow them to have this conversation that they're having in the workplace that really has never happened before them. Not because we didn't want it, but because it just, it, it, we didn't. We assumed that it wasn't the thing that we were supposed to have. We assumed that it was strange to want to, you know, invite colleagues over for, you know, and 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 have them over socially or talk about the things that we're doing outside of work, inside of work. Because, you know, you went to work, you got in your car, you got in the bus, or you walked, you went home, and and you left, and there was no way to be in contact. Now we're just so constantly uh, uh, aligned and um, and integrated that it's it it is just all part of the same conversation. Well, one of the things that this book does well is you tell a lot of great stories. There's a lot of stories in it. And and you have one about Lonsdale Coster, who started a path to become a priest, and then her trajectory changed drastically. Can you tell the listeners the story and the purpose of defining your calling, meaning all of us out there who are attempting to get the first element that you have in here in calling, connection, contribution, and control? Yes, yeah, so Lonsdale uh, is somebody who I've known for some time because she came to me probably about a decade ago for some career advice, and I was really taken by her story, which was uh, that she uh, she was a churchy kid. She always loved church. She 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 always felt this calling, and she assumed that she would become an Episcopalian minister. And along the path towards that, she just met with tons of red tape and um, and sexism and bureaucracy and all sorts of stuff from her local parish. And it, it, it was it was difficult. And she, as part of going through the process to to uh, join the priesthood, she um, 
ended up working in a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. And when she was there uh, and realizing that it wasn't going to happen for the priesthood, she went out to dinner with a woman who was on the sort of on the, the lay board of her local church. And the woman said to her, and I think this is it's hilarious because she says, we went out to the Cactus Canteen in Washington, D.C. And over sparkling water, uh, she said, um, you know, you don't have to be a priest to be a minister. And Lonsdale likes to laugh about that because she says it's probably the only uh, life epiphany, a sober life epiphany that's ever happened to the Cactus Cantina <laughs> ever. And the purpose of the story in the book is to say that even though Lonsdale thought that she wanted to help people, she wanted to help change people's lives and empower them and, 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 and be there to make their lives better, she found another route to do it because she realized that, her, that, that she was not going to be able to do it one way, but it didn't mean that she had to give up on her calling. She could still find her calling through a different type of career. And so Lon still pursued work both in political and nonprofit organizations and has had a wonderful life both in that as her vocation and then um, and, and, and then uh, uh, as a leader in her local church in her avocation. Yeah, she got to do both. And uh, it was a great story. And I highly recommend our listeners uh, definitely get the book. There'll be a link to Amazon to the book. Uh, and read the stories in here because the stories really do drive home what Laura's talking about. Now, you have four ways to bring a calling to work. What are those four ways? And and can you comment on the four ways for the listeners? Uh, sure. So, um, so finding your calling is it's somewhat tricky, right? We always think that calling has to be this big, lofty, higher purpose thing. And I... Um, and I think that's part of why we get it wrong in the first place. I think that we we assume that purpose has to be a higher purpose, and if it's not that, then clearly it it it, it doesn't it doesn't work. The, that we're just pushing paper. Our work doesn't matter. And so I would start the question of four ways to find your calling by really reminding people that your calling can be anything you want your calling to be. If it's curing cancer, awesome. If it's um, working to get your family out of debt to have financial flexibility, that's awesome too. If it's buying a Maserati in a beach house, great. That's your purpose. That's your calling. And nobody should get a vote about your calling but you. So I want to just start by removing that burden from people. So the first way to go and find your calling is to figure out what fuels you, is to spend some time thinking about what it is that you do. So if, um, you know, if, if, uh, you're an entrepreneur, that can be your calling. If you're somebody who um, loves running and wants to spend tons of time, you know, geeked out about everything that happens in running in terms of technology and shoes and racing, or, then maybe that's your calling. If you're somebody who, um, who, who, who is just ignited by, um, uh, by reading, by learning about new things, maybe there's a calling in there for you. But it's figuring out when you have a choice of how to spend your time, what is it that really gets you excited? And that leads into the second thing, which is to take an attention inventory. So really sit down and think about what you're qualified to do, but also don't stop at the borders of your, of your paid work. And I think this is where a lot of people fail in their quest to figure out their calling, is to really rely solely on just how other people have defined them, um, how other people pay them. I am an X. I'm an accountant. I'm a lawyer. I'm a bricklayer. I'm a whatever it is. That's not necessarily who you are. So think about what do you do with the rest of your day? 
What have you done for your child's school? Have you volunteered in your place of worship? What have you learned along the way in a neighborhood community? Or what are the hobbies or leisure activities where you spend your time? This is the kind of stuff that really is where you want to spend your is, – is where you're really looking for your calling. And in addition to that, I would think about not just the stuff you do as a volunteer or the stuff that you're paid for, but even more, what are all the things that you do in your office, in your job, that you don't get paid for, the committees that you volunteer for? These are things that actually interest you. The third thing is, is um, I say, to make deposits in the future bank of you. And – you know, they say, do what you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. I think it's fine advice, but I, I, I don't know that it's complete advice. I think if you figure out what you love, that's a good thing, but I think you might also get kind of bored with that. I mean, I, I don't know that I'd want to spend my whole career doing the thing that I figured out I loved at 22 years old. So um, I, I tell people not to be so afraid of the divergence of learning new things and, and, and figuring it out, you know, new tricks along the way. Think about not just what you love to do, but what would you love to do in the future and maybe start to think about how to how – to, um, how to, how to gain more skills, more network, more knowledge in those areas. And then the last thing is, um, you know, a lot of people may be saying, well, you know, it sounds all well and good. I don't really have the flexibility right now to do any of those things. Um, so this is where I say to tend your crops. And tend your crops is a, it's, it's, it's an expression that my 16-year-old my uses when he talks about going on side quests, playing video games. If you can't go all the way to the, the castle and save the princess and, and slay the dragon, you can tend your crops right now. Because if you tend your crops, you can take them to the market, you can sell them for money, you can, um, uh, you can get the sword, you can get the horse, so that when you're ready, you can, in their video game, you can jump on the horse, go to the castle, slay the dragon, and save the princess. And so the, another way to find your calling is just to spend some time on these little side quests, tending your crops and figuring out if it's stuff you actually like. So, you know, go to a networking event, talk to strangers, take a class, tag along to a presentation, listen to podcasts like this, you know, read my book. Uh, doing these sorts of things will help you to both gain new skills and network and knowledge, but also realize along the way, well, is this something I'm really interested in? Do I want to spend more time in here or is it not? And then you can move on to something else which might be more of your calling. Well, those four ways to uh, actually bring more calling to work are certainly something for our listeners to read and consider and reflect on. And, you know, you also talk about this connection part. And you first met, I'm going to say, Jenna San Juan, is it? San Juan? When oh, you were Gina working. Sinoni. Sinoni. <laughs> when you worked together in the Clinton White House. And she hoped her job would be in the airline industry. You mentioned that, you know, she kind of plateaued at work and was called more to her interest in women's leadership. I think her story was really interesting. Can you tell the listeners the story and how she made connections through uh, the confluence of this event? Jean and I first met when we worked together in the Clinton White House, and she grew up, her mom was in the airline industry, she always thought she'd be in the airline industry, and like me, you know, she was inspired by hearing Bill Clinton speak about this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition, and like me, and lots of other young people sort of stopped everything she was doing, and got involved in the campaign, and moved to D.C., and we both ended up in the White House office that created AmeriCorps. 
after four years there, I decided I was going to go back out on the campaign trail and ended up working in executive search. Uh, she decided that she wanted to go um, finally pursue the career uh, in, in, in the airline industry and went to get her MBA. And she had a phenomenal career, um, in, first at Northwest Airlines and then when they merged with Delta. And she you know, was one of the senior, senior women there, really rising through the ranks. But then the 2016 election happened, and she just was – frustrated. She was frustrated that she didn't feel that women were succeeding at the highest levels of politics in a way that she had hoped. And it became clear to her that the reason that they weren't was data, that there wasn't enough data to say where, you know, it's not that every woman should run because if more women run, more women win. It's where are the districts that women are more likely to win and let's recruit and run and, and, and recruit, train and run women in those districts. And she specialized in data. She loves solving problems. So this seemed to her to be a really terrific idea. So she took a leave of absence from Delta Airlines and um, started a nonprofit called Her Term. And that's what this nonprofit does. It analyzes the data to determine in which districts women were more likely to be successful and then get them to run from there. But what she realized along the way was that she actually hated fundraising. And while she was great at fundraising for candidates, she hated fundraising for herself and the overhead um, and, the, you know, her salary and all of that. And so she looked at her options and determined that actually if she went back and worked full-time at Delta, she could support her term on the side. So even though she went back to a job at Delta that, you know, she was well-respected throughout the company, the transition back was relatively seamless, but she was, you know, and she was still in an industry that she loved. The job itself that she went back to was fine, didn't light her up every single day, but you know, it was a little less of a calling than before. But it was it was good enough. But she but because of it, she it actually allowed her, and this is actually in the contribution section of the book. It actually allowed her to contribute to the kind of life that she wanted and to be able to manifest the values that she wanted because she could um, she she could support her term from the side. Now, people might be thinking, like, this doesn't sound like a real great storybook ending. I'm not so sure it's how I want to achieve consonants. But here's the specific point that I make in the book, is that Gina actually does have consonants, because after her calling shifted in 2016, she adjusted and achieved connection through working with her term. But she now has contribution also through Delta. So she has consonants in this overall picture of her work, where she, um, she both has contribution through the way her salary allows her to support her term on the side, and she has connection to something she really cares about by being able to keep her term going as a, as a going concern. She has the best of both worlds, as we say. So the reality is, is that it, it does have uh, the continents in it. Now, you at your website and in your TEDx talk, you state that people get stuck, right? And I would agree with that. It's about getting unstuck. How would you uh, help the listeners out there that right now uh, to reframe the questions they're asking themselves to get unstuck, to think out of the box. Um, there's probably well, a I lot think, of people listening to this that are stuck right now. Yeah, well, so I would say there's two things. I would say the first is that if people are listening to this conversation about consonants and saying, yeah, it's really, I don't know where to start, I would say, 
Um, I put together a quiz at LimitlessAssessment.com, and I'll say that again for people driving right now, LimitlessAssessment.com, um, and you can go take that quiz. It takes about 15 minutes. Um, there's about 60 questions or so, and it really walks you through all four elements of calling, connection, contribution, and control. And at the end of it, you'll see a beautiful radar chart that has one uh, radar that shows how much of calling, connection, contribution, and control you have in your life right now, and how much of each you want in your life right now. So you'll see these two overlapping, hopefully, charts, and where they're not overlapping, you'll see where you're not in consonance. Um, and then the beauty of, the, of, of the, the quiz, of course, is that it'll give you some specific ideas about things you can do right now today to tend your crops and help to get you to a place where you can move towards more consonants in your life. So that's the first thing. The second is um, I think that we – we tend to have this tendency to see problems in the world and say, how can I help? What can I do? And I think that that's the wrong question. I think when we, when we see um, a problem, whether it's you know, our neighbor's car breaking down or like a tsunami, we say, how can I help? And we either give them a ride to work, we send teddy bears, you know, we do things that are, that are short-term fixes on the problem, but we're not actually solving the problem, and it leads to this this, this, this malaise, this feeling of being stuck because we haven't made any progress. So I would offer a better question. This is the one that I talk about in my TEDx talk that you, that you mentioned, which is also um, on, my, on my site. Um, I think a better question to ask is one that takes us out of the center of the problem and stops us from defining the entire solution just through what we at that moment know that we can give. And the better question is, what needs to happen? So, you know, if there's a tsunami and lots of people die, sending, sending teddy bears isn't going to help them in the next tsunami. But donating money and, and doing the research and, and helping with the science and the logistics to create better, earning, better early warning detection systems will. Right? If it's your neighbor whose car is broken down he needs a ride to work because he can't afford both the mechanic and his rent – Getting him to work that day helps him, and by all means, we should do these short-term things. We just shouldn't let go of the long-term understanding that solving his problem really probably means getting him better skills or a better resume or new networks or new connection or interviewing techniques so that he can get a better job, which pays more, so that he can afford both his rent and his, and his mechanic. Well, one of the things that I think uh, you mentioned here, and for our listeners, uh, we are going to put links to the quiz that she's talking about, the Limitless Life Quiz. It's actually at her website. We'll put a link to Laura's website as well. Um, so you can go there. You also can download an excerpt from the book um, to help you get unstuck and achieve extraordinary results. That will be there as well. There's some great videos up there that you can see Laura speaking her at TEDx. Uh, we'll put a link to that as well. Laura, it's been a pleasure having you on and speaking about Limitless and how to help people take more control of their life, carve out their own path and live their best life. I appreciate you taking the time being on with our listeners and spending a few minutes imparting your wisdom about uh, you not only your journey, but the journey of many other people that you documented in the book uh, who've been able to use some of these techniques uh, to actually make a better life for themselves and for the world. Any parting words? Uh, no, Greg, this has been wonderful. Your your listeners can find me on all the socials at HeyLGO and at HeyLGO.com. We will put those links up as well. Uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, um, LinkedIn, we'll have all of them up there. So thanks so much, Laura. Thank you. Have a great day. 
This podcast is brought to you by Ron Price and Stacey Enos, the authors of a new book entitled Growing Influence, a story of how to lead with character, expertise, and impact. Please listen to podcast number 713, where Ron and Stacy discuss a very compelling story where Emily, a career-driven 30-something with big ambitions, meets a retired CEO by the name of David, who becomes her mentor. Throughout the course of the book, David teaches Emily some very valuable lessons on how to develop leadership skills and navigate her role as a leader. Please listen to Greg's interview with Ron and Stacy about growing influence on podcast number 713. If you want more information about Growing Influence or Price Associates, please go to www.price-associates.com backslash growing influence. Thanks for listening.